you may have heard of the Christian couple from England who were so afraid by the prospect of war that uh, they decided to move to the safest place in the world. Uh, in order to find the safest place in the world, uh, they did lots of research. They did a serious study, uh, and they visited lots of different places uh, in the world uh, to find this place. Uh, finally, uh, they decided that the safest place in the world was the Falkland Islands. Does anyone know where the Falkland Islands is? Yep. Um, apparently, it's uh, sort of um, below South America and uh, above Antarctica. Anyway, the story goes that the couple then moved to the safest place in the world. Uh, they were so happy with their new location that they even sent a greeting card to their pastor uh, on the first Christmas, telling him how wonderful this new place was. Just before all-out war broke out on the Falkland Islands, in what is now called the Falkland War, uh, it's not known whether the couple actually survived. Uh, you see, it, it's hard to get away from war and conflict and fighting in this world, isn't it? Uh, it's true of physical war, but it's also true in our personal relationships, in our marriages, and even in our churches as well. Uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will know that Christians and churches are not immune to uh, all our conflict with one another. Uh, it was Gandhi who observed the fighting between Christians and once sadly said these words. He said, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. Now, uh, we've been looking at the letter of James uh, over the past few months. Uh, last week, if you remember, uh, we looked at the problem of the uncontrollable tongue. But in today's passage, James looks at how Christians can be at war with one another. It's no surprise that this passage follows the passage on the uncontrollable tongue, because if you don't control your tongue, then what happens? Well, you end up with war and conflict and hostility against others. Is that not true? It's quite evident that the Christian people that James is writing to here are at war with one another, if you have a look at uh, the passage closely. Uh, for example, you can see there in chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, have a look with me. Uh, you, you, you see there that James speaks of disorder and every vile practice. Uh, further, if you look down at chapter 4, verse 1, he asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Uh, the word for quarrels and the word for fights are literally the words uh, in the Greek language for war and battles. Reading today's passage should feel like you know, watching a violent scene at Saving Private Ryan. So have you ever been at war with others at church? Have you known conflict uh, with other people, other Christian people? In some ways, uh, I think our church is pretty good at avoiding uh, open conflict and all-out hostility. Uh, I certainly haven't seen uh, that sort of thing in my time. 
this morning I want us to dig a little bit deeper and be a little bit more honest. But have you ever been off beat with someone and you're a bit offended? Because things were not done according to your preference. Have you ever judged or hated other people because of their lifestyle or what they have owned? because you cared for them, but perhaps because you were jealous of them? Have you ever been angry towards others in the church because uh, you were not treated in the way that you thought you should be treated or deserve to be treated? You see, scratch under the surface, and I think conflict is not something that we are strangers to. But what does James say about in the church. Uh, well, the first thing he says in our passage, if you uh, have chapter 13 in front of you, is that such conflict demonstrates a lack of true vision. Conflict in the church demonstrates a lack of true wisdom. And you can see there that he raises the issue of wisdom in uh, chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13, where he asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? On the one hand, we have worldly wisdom. Uh, in verse 15, uh, this kind of wisdom is described as earthly and unspiritual and demonic. In other words, this kind of wisdom has its source from Satan himself. On the other hand, we have true wisdom. In verse 17, this kind of wisdom as a wisdom that is from above. Why? Well, it's because the source of this wisdom is not from Satan, but is actually from God, who sits on his throne in heaven above. Now, that might be obvious in, in this passage, isn't it? But I want you to look, friends, uh, a little bit closer and, uh, and uh, notice two very important things in this passage about these two different kinds of wisdom. Firstly, did you notice the motivations behind these different kinds of wisdom? And in verse 14, the person with worldly wisdom is motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition. And you can see it there again uh, in verse 16, uh, don't you, uh, where jealousy and selfish ambition in other words, the person with worldly wisdom uh, is the person who is self-centered. And it's the person who easily becomes jealous because they want things that other people have for themselves. It is the person who is selfish in their ambitions and always kind of looks at the social pecking order and has a need to be better than others. True wisdom is not motivated by and selfish ambition. Rather, you can see there in verse 17 that true wisdom is first of all pure, it says. Now, I think it's important to point out that uh, uh, I don't think James here is talking about sexual purity, uh, which you can kind of seem like he's saying. 
But in the book of James, purity is about not being stained by the world's values, which is, you know, all about me and how wealthy I am and how I can be better than others in the things that I own and in the things that I do. It's like that uh, advertisement for superannuation that some of you may have seen uh, many years ago, if you're long enough. Uh, remember that tagline which said, you know, for the most important person in the world, you. Necessarily, the ones who have given to more college. In fact, you can go to more college and learn lots of things about the Bible, but still be selfish and not serve anyone other than yourself. But you see, there in verse 16, that those with worldly wisdom are the ones who are so selfish that they are characterized by disorder in their relationships and every vile practice. Verse 17, notice what characterizes those with true wisdom. Now, they are the ones who are described there as peaceable rather than forgiving. They are the ones who are gentle rather than harsh and quick towards others. They are the ones who are open to reason rather than you know, never changing their mind because they don't want to lose the argument. They're the ones who are full of mercy rather than merciless towards people who don't seem to offer them anything. They're the ones who are impartial rather than those who show favoritism towards those who seem impressive in the eyes of the world. They're the ones who are sincere rather than double-minded, you know, serving God on a Sunday but serving themselves from Monday to Saturday. They're the ones who have a the righteousness, because uh, as they work towards peace in the church or in the Christian community rather than war, well, they sow peace in other people's lives as well. That's a bit like the butterfly analogy. Don't you know what a butterfly effect is? It's that theory that says if a, if a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the world, then uh, it will set off a chain reaction that causes a huge tornado on the other side of the world. In other words, something so small can produce something so great. And here, it's as people who have true wisdom speak small words that are peaceful, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and impartial and sincere that James is writing here to a people who may be self-deceived in thinking that they are wise and knowledgeable, when in fact they don't have true wisdom at all, not at all. Well, if you have a look at 
chapter 3, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14, notice that James describes these people as boasting and being false to the truth. In other words, these are people who were boasting about their wisdom and understanding, but in actual fact, what they really possessed was not true wisdom, but the wisdom of the world. every area of life. And so, uh, the vast majority of students think they are above average in their intelligence. Uh, the vast majority of people think that they are above average in, in their ability for books. If I ask you, you probably think the same. The vast majority of people think they are above average in their driving skills. It's simply a self-deception that comes from pride. But you see, that's what can happen to Christians as well, isn't it? It's quite possible for us to think that we are wise and understanding in our own eyes. But when we have a look at the relationships we have and the conflict that we often have, then it seems to suggest that we may be influenced more by James won't allow us to get off that easy. 
He takes a third of life to each and every one of us. And us, whether the true cause might actually be found in us. But more specifically, for any of us, whether the real cause of life and death arise may be the cause of that worldliness that brings us all in our hearts. Uh, now, just to be clear, uh, worldliness in the book of James, like purity, is not about sinful sins. Right? It's not about swearing. It's not about watching too much Netflix. Rather, worldliness in James is about adopting the world's values, which says that life is all about me and material riches and luxury goods and holidays at the expense of my relationship with God and at the expense of my relationships with others, particularly those who may need my help. And that's why James says in chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, that the cause of war and conflict in the church is due to passions that are at war within us. The war out there is actually because of the war that is going on in here, you see. You see, beginning verse 3, where he speaks about Christians using things wrongly to satisfy our passions. Now, the word for passion that James uses here is actually the word from which we get our English word, hedonism, which is the love of pleasure above all things, including God and uh, our neighbor. It's not about pleasure and wealth are evil in and of themselves. It's just that they can become evil when we selfishly love these things over and above God Himself. And so, uh, it's because these Christians have become worldly in this sense that in verse 2 they desire and covet and become jealous of other things that other people have. And when they can't have these things, they end up murdering the, the people who have them. Uh, now, James is talking uh, here about homicide, which is pretty hard to imagine a church where these people are you know, stabbing and beating each other. But just like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, James uses the language of murder here to describe the hatred that can be aroused in people, which is the real murder Jesus these Christians have become worldly in their hearts, that God does not answer their prayers. You know, when we pray, we ought to be asking for the things that please God and are in line with His will and His purposes for this world. And that's why we pray the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Which is a God-centered prayer rather than a human-centered or self-centered prayer. But here, these Christians are simply praying for things simply to spend it on their pleasures and their hedonistic lifestyles. And James says that's why God is not listening to them. In fact, what James says to worldly Christians is that they are engaged in what he describes as spiritual adultery against God. You see it there in verse 4. Actually, verse 4. 
you adulterous people, James says. You see, God is like a husband who, who rightly expects exclusive love and loyalty from his wife to the exclusion of all others. But what have these Christians done? Well, they have given their love and loyalty and power to the things of this world, like wealth and riches and luxury, instead of a way, uh, instead, um, and that they've been doing these things in a way that excludes a relationship with God and with other people. Sometimes I just want you to see the horror of what James is saying here. Uh, if you are married, imagine you come home early from work one day because you really want to see your, your spouse. But when you get home from work and you open the bedroom door, well, you see your spouse in bed with another person. Or if you're not married, imagine someone close to you who is married, but who you know is frequently visiting hotels during the day because they are having affairs. See, that's how God views you and me. If we are worldly and hedonistic, driven by selfish love for the things of this world first, above God and others. But look, notice that God is generous. In verse 5, James quotes an important theme in the Bible. He says, Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? We need to be careful here because James has just rebuked these Christians that he's writing to because of their jealousy towards one another. But the jealousy of God is not like our jealousy. You know, we get jealous of things that other people have which do not actually belong to us. But when God gets jealous, uh, he gets jealous of people who rightly belong to him. Like a husband would get jealous of a wife who is is being adulterous. You know, if you are a husband and you find your wife committing adultery with another man and you don't get jealous or you don't get angry about it or you just remain indifferent to what is happening, then it probably means you didn't love your wife.
continues to remind us that we will be the ones who repent and to do a new turning in our lives. And it changes the way that we think so that we are serious about the things that God tells us. We can't expect forgiveness from God without true repentance. That's why the rest of our passage this morning is really all about uh, repentance and all about turning away from our worldliness and turning to God. And you can see there in the passage that genuine repentance always has two dimensions. It has a Godward, vertical dimension as well as well as a horizontal human dimension. First thing, genuine repentance is Godward because it's all about submitting to God. Now you can see it there in chapter four verse seven, chapter four verse seven, where James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. In other words, if you really want to repent before God, well it means yielding yourself to God so that your life is no longer about your selfish and hedonistic and luxury lifestyle that is all about you, but now it becomes about God and His ways. There can be no repentance unless we are prepared to embrace. But what does submission look like? Well, if you read on in verse 7, it it involves resisting the devil. The word for resist there is literally a word that means to take a stand. That is, if you find yourself becoming more and more worldly, well, take a stand. And do not cave into your worldly desires in ways that compromise your Christian life. Take a stand and don't take back from them if it means it's going to compromise your Christian life. Take a stand and learn to live not for your lifestyle, but for the gospel. Take a stand. Make some radical decisions. Don't go on that holiday if it means missing out on important Christian commitments. And the promise is that if you and I take these kinds of stands, then the devil will see there in verse 8 that James tells us to draw near to God. Now, I don't think this is talking about uh, intimate worship with God. You know, if you are a Christian person, then do you know that you cannot be any closer to God than what you already are? to the Lord Jesus Christ himself by faith. And so if you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot get any closer to God, you see. No matter what your feelings might tell you at times. This, uh, what James is talking about here is he's talking about turning away from worldliness and turning to God. Promise of God is that if you draw near to Him in that way, then He will draw near. 
Gracias. 